is it just because we're American and it's such an American thing to avoid it at all costs? Or is it just youth? You know, is that the nature of youth? And and we're made like that to not think about it and not talk about it until we have to. This is Farewelling, the podcast where we talk about death and dying to learn more about living. Busson, and today I want to take you back a little bit to how the idea for Farewelling came about. It's actually a very personal story, and it involves my younger sister, who went through a major health crisis of her own in 2015. And it was as a result of that health crisis that I started thinking about everything around this topic, mortality, why we're all here, what's going to happen to us, and it was really the inspiration for my building Farewelling and this podcast. So on this episode, I'm actually talking to my sister, Sarah, who helped me realize why it's so important to have these tough conversations with your family and friends, even though they might seem awkward, scary, or overly dramatic. Having said that, I still find it difficult to talk to my sister in person about this topic. So we made a compromise, and we're speaking over the phone. That's why the audio quality on this episode might not be as great as you'd expect, and Sarah might sound kind of far away, even though the conversation we're having is one of the most intimate we've ever had. Hello, is that Sarah? Hi, it's me. How are you? How was your day today? It was good, actually. It was good. I got a lot done. So, Sarah, you are my sister. That I am. <laughs> I'm delighted to say. And why we're having this conversation is, as you know, I am on a bit of a mission to try to help people deal with the topic of death and what they value and how they think and feel about it and just to be more open about it. So when I thought about trying to change the conversation, I thought, well, Maybe I should have the conversation. And I know that this is a conversation that nobody ever wants to have with anyone they love. I mean, no one wants to have it at all, basically, but they definitely don't want to have it with someone that they love. So I'm not 100% sure why you agreed to do this for me, but um, I love you. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think that's true. Actually, you know, it's funny because probably before I was sick, I would not want to have that conversation more than now, honestly, because I don't know. I, I think that's like a benefit of an experience like that is uh, I so much of the time feel everybody else's anxiety about talking about it. And, you know, once in a while I'll slip and crack a, a bit of a dark joke and I feel badly because I see people squirm because they feel uncomfortable almost with my comfort with it now that I had to sort of look it in the eye so mm. you know honestly it's much easier much 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 easier for me to have the conversation now than it would have been you know before I got sick 
That's interesting. Speaking of which, I don't know how you feel about this, but I was hoping that you would maybe tell the story of what happened because it kind of happened yeah. in two parts, right? Yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, I found out when I was, you know, fairly young. 37, I 38? Was, I don't know, 30. Well, I found out about my family history late in life. I didn't realize until my late 30s that I had this strong family history, not from the side I have in common with you, not from mom's side, but from my dad's side. Yeah, I just had my younger son. So you had two young uh, kids. Two young kids and we were still living in New York City and I you know, found out about the family history and, you know, I mentioned it to my gynecologist who kind of blew it off and was like, yeah, you know, go get it checked out. And I actually called to make an appointment for genetic testing and the hospital in New York that I called, you know, the their genetic testing clinic was like, oh, our counselor left, call back in three months or whatever, which, you know, we can have a whole other conversation about the ethical issues I have with that. <laughs> but anyway, so I put it off some more. And then about a year after that, we moved to Westchester. And because of the move, I wanted to get a new GYN who was out here. And I did that and saw her for the first time. And she heard about my family history and sent me directly, like immediately for genetic testing. And so I got the testing and found out that indeed I was BRCA positive, which is the, you know, as you know, the mutation that makes you more susceptible to breast and ovarian cancer and maybe some others, but those are the main ones. Anyway, so, you know, I found that out. And at that time I was like 40. I think I had just turned 40 earlier that year. And so, you know, when I went and, you know, I got the counseling and then talked to the medical oncologist there about what I should do, there was no question. He was like, you should take action. And so I had all of the preventative surgeries and so, you know, chances are, if you do that, your risk is just as low as the general population of getting those cancers. So I thought I was like doing pretty well. I had a double mastectomy and a hysterectomy and my ovaries out. I think a lot of people know, for example, that Angelina Jolie, the movie star, had a similar, just for people who don't know like what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So I was in exactly the same situation. And it was actually really interesting because this all happened to me right around the time she came out. So I actually had my testing before she came out about it. They came out publicly about it, but didn't get my results until after she came out publicly about it. So in that whatever you know, three weeks time, I was waiting for my results. This whole thing with Angelina Jolie came out. So it was really interesting and timely. And I remember talking to you about it and saying, like, I honestly never thought I would be positive. I wasn't really even worried about it. However, I remember saying to you, like, well, if it's positive, like, there's no way I'm, I'm doing it. Like, I, I wouldn't want to live with the anxiety of screening and there's not very good screening for ovarian cancer to begin with. So so that was like, was that 2013? I think it was 2013. And then, um, yes. so you went through this whole thing and this mm-hmm. was obviously major surgery, a major yeah. decision about your life. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to ask you is before the next thing 
happened, you were very decisive. What went through your mind at that point when you did hear that? Were you just like, I am going to do this so I don't have to worry or? Yeah, I was definitely like, I don't want to be one of those people who has cancer treatment. Uh, that sounds miserable. You know, and I, I didn't want to, I just didn't want to be sick. You know, I didn't want to be a sick person. I don't think I really thought about death. I think about like, ugh, I don't want to be like, maybe it was in the back of my mind, but it was more like, I don't want to deal with cancer. Cancer is scary. Treatment is terrible. I don't want to be someone with a long-term illness. That, those were more my thoughts. Yeah, and so major surgery okay. to like remove massive, you know, parts of your body was like preferable to like thinking about that. I'm not exactly. laughing, I'm just saying exactly. that. So you, you did all that. And then did you feel a sense of relief after? Like you were like, okay, I did this. I got yeah, through this. I did, I did. And then what happened? So even though I didn't have cancer, the genetic counseling team sent me to one of their, the head of the cancer center there, a medical oncologist who, you know, I got his stage advice about what I should do. Um, you know, I met with him a few times. And then when I was done, he's like, you know what, I'm bringing you in every six months because of your predisposition. We'll just do blood work every six months just to, you know, make sure everything's okay. He just was sort yeah. of doing an extra level of screening. Yeah. And I don't think that many do that because they don't think it's warranted, but thankfully he did because you know, I went in for my regular routine six months blood work and they called me the next day and was like, can you come back? Okay, wait, because I was with you when you got that call. Well, no, no? you were for the second call. Okay. They were, can you come back? Because there must have been a mistake. We think there was a mistake and we just want to do the blood draw again. So okay. I went back in and they did another blood draw and I was with you in Queens. That's right. We were in a, in a Pakistani restaurant having like yes, lunch we were. <laughs> and like, you know, loving life. And then suddenly you got this, this phone call. So they called me and they were like, your tumor marker for ovarian cancer was something astronomical. In that moment, like when you got that news, do you remember like what went through your mind? You know, it was very much like a disbelief. I mean, it was the same when I got the genetic testing results, honestly. I mean, I stopped in there to get my results on the way to the mall. I didn't really think, I was very much like, this isn't really going to happen to me. I've always been healthy. I've never had any chronic illness. I don't know. You know, like, I didn't see myself as a person who ever had to worry about this kind of stuff. So it was the same kind of then. It was like, okay, what? You know, I still didn't really believe it could be real. but they wanted me to come in for a, I can't remember if it was a CT scan first and then a PET scan or a PET scan first, but um, for, you know, for more testing. And so that's what I did.
we went back and did we go straight there? Yeah, we did. I remember we went from Queens. We literally got back on the subway and we just went all the way back and I went with you. And I remember that day you had to drink that. To the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. So again, totally in disbelief and you know it because the next morning I woke up and, you know, I still hadn't heard anything about the results and I got dressed. I remember I wore like jeans and a sweater and boots. Like I got dressed for the day and Samir was going to go to work. Samir, yeah, Samir my, my brother. And I was like, oh yeah. I was like, you know, I wasn't like, like you go to work or whatever. I'll let you know. I'll let you know if, if something happens or, you know, total denial on my part. And so he did, he went to work and then I didn't hear anything. So finally, I don't know, it was like maybe 10 AM I call and, you know, talk to the nurse and she's like, you know, I just talked to Dr. Custom. He's like, why don't, why don't, you know, we did see something. So why don't you come in or whatever? Again, total denial. I'm like, okay. So, I mean, I wasn't like totally nonchalant, but I wasn't crying or anything. I, you know, drove right there, went to see him, you know, sat down in his office and he, you know, this is the beauty of my doctor. He's literally the best. And, you know, he pretty much gave me the diagnosis. I could tell in hindsight, I could tell he was like, what are you doing here alone? Mm. You know, it was like, you should call your husband. I was like, okay. So I called Tamir, who I think at the time had already been like, what am I doing? Why am I not there? So he was already on his way back. Mm. Well, um, you are that you, know, you are that kind of person who just sort of takes care of business. Well, you know, honestly, sometimes it's easier. You know, that's the part that's the hardest is you see how hard it is on the people around you. Mm. So, you know, honestly, dealing with it, the diagnosis alone was easier for me than having him in the room. So there you go. But, oh my God. you know, he, if anyone can deliver news like that to you in a way that makes you feel like action oriented and like everything's going to be okay, it's him. It was great. And, what was the diagnosis? It's essentially ovarian cancer when you don't have ovaries. Um, it's ova- it's cancer in the lining of your abdomen called the peritoneum, mm-hmm. um, which has some ovarian-like cells. This is how I understand it. And so, whereas typically, more commonly, it would be the actual cells of the ovaries that get go cancerous or, you know, have the slip. They, I had some of those cells, and that happened to the cells in the lining of the abdomen. So, yeah, you know, it started to become real. And he was essentially like, we're doing surgery, not tomorrow, but within the next week. What happened next is he sent me directly across the street to the GYN oncologist, who's the surgeon. And the bright side is I knew all of these people already from my preventative surgery. So it wasn't like I was assembling a brand new team. But he was like, he's known, let's just say he's known for his skills in surgery, but he definitely has like negative patient-centered careness about yeah. him. Yeah, he's and it was in his office that he told me about the staging, which by definition for this kind of cancer is three C, which is 
you know, almost four, which is not good. Not good. And that's when I got really upset when he mentioned that. And I was like, what? And I remember walking out of his office with Samir at that point and just kind of really being like, this is too much. Um, And I think recognizing everything might not turn out okay. Um, And, you know, you're just not going to know until they get in there and do the surgery. So there was kind of a week preparing and that. And then he did tell me once the surgery was over, you know, that I was lucky and that he was able to do the job he wanted to do and that, you know, I knew how important that was for the outcome. Hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like not a situation where you're feeling that lucky at that point either. No, no, I was not (laughs) feeling lucky at that point because then I had, you know, almost a year of chemotherapy ahead of me as well, which is really scary. Super scary. And I mean, just having watched you go through that, I, um, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I understand too, you know, some chemotherapies are worse than others. And that was, if you're going to wish for any, that's not the kind to wish for. Yeah. And, um, you know, like, as I was thinking about having this conversation, which obviously is, as I said, is like not a conversation that I ever really would even want to have. I realized that during that entire time, and, and for some of that time, I actually lived with you, that we never, you know, had a real talk kind of conversation about you know, existentially, like what, how, what are you thinking? Uh, how are you feeling about those things? And in, in retrospect, I actually feel like that was a failing on my part, but it was like, talk about denial. I was not having a conversation about like any other outcome than a full recovery. You know what I mean? And yeah, but it's not your fault. And frankly, I wouldn't have had the energy. You know, I was so worn out from, I think, everything that just happened and then the treatment was so brutal and then the kids like I don't think I could have even had that conversation if you had brought it up you know yeah I think that's the reason to have the conversations ahead of time so you don't have to have them when because I wasn't well I I barely had the energy to like you know eat food well, I mean, and, you know, just to be completely honest, uh, so everybody knows, I live five minutes away from you and I could be having this conversation in person with you. But even now, even it's like, what, three years removed from the situation? Yeah. I I, I, I would not be able to be having, I'm already like feeling, you know, it's just. I know. I think Samir feels the same way. But it's like, I want to help people think about these things because they are worth thinking about and worth considering what it is that's important to each of us, even though it's never going to be the the discussion that you want to have. It's not going to be a discussion you want to open. But hey, <laughs> I'm doing it. I might be on the phone, but I'm doing it. No, and you know, I, I feel like, I mean, whether we like it or not, this shit happens. It happens not just to me. And that thought always helps me. You know, I'm not the only one. I have friends who have gone through this. I have friends. I don't remember if you remember my friend Karen Marie's mom, you know. Yeah. She went through this and she did not 
come out okay in the end. You know, a few years later, she passed away. That's the way it is. I find it helpful to remember that, honestly. It's not like it's not hard, but it's, it's life. You know, that's, that's the way it is. And I think because we don't talk about it, people act like it's so, I don't know. I think it would make it easier if it, if it didn't feel so much like when you're going through it, you're the only one. And like now, do you still get people coming up to you and saying like, are you okay? Or, oh, you look great. Much more before, you know, it's been quite a while now, but I don't mind it. But I, there's a couple of people now that always, when they see me, they're like, how are you? How are you doing? Some people will be like, how's your health? I, I do appreciate their concern, but I you know, because I think of the timing that it happened to, I'm still like not ready to take on that role of an old sick person. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, which you I, are not, I'm not, I'm not done yet, you know? And it's the reason and I've told you that before. Like I haven't really, there are very few people at work that I've come out to um, about being sick because I don't want to deal with everybody else's bullshit about my having been sick. And they're tiptoeing around it or what they can say or what they can't say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this sort of like, almost like, as you said, like this expectation that, you know, they, that certain topics are off limits or if somebody makes a joke or, or that it informs everything or you, you know, you feel like every time they look at you, that's what they're thinking. Or, or... Well, and cause I work in healthcare too, then everybody thinks automatically that I'm like, uh, sort of like patient advocate, which I am a patient advocate, but I'm, you know, I was doing this work long before this ever happened. Um, and, you know, it makes me better at what I do, but it doesn't define what I do. Um, so I have to be really careful. I feel like messaging at work because immediately, you know, I think that's where people's heads go. And frankly, they don't, you know, if, if that's the case, they don't take me seriously because I, you know, I was away from work I had taken a couple of years off when you know your nephew my older son was born early then bam all of this happened with finding out about my BRCA status and then you know as soon as I was getting ready to go back getting a cancer diagnosis so you know whatever six years later going back to work I stick with the assumption everyone makes that I took six years off to you know be a mom rather than tell them about everything else I just go with it let them judge you for motherhood as opposed to being exactly then deal with their preconceived notions about what I am now and you know what kind of employee I'll be being a cancer survivor Mm, yeah yeah as you know I tend to be in my head a little bit so rather than deal with all worrying about all of that I just prefer to keep it to myself. So having been through all of this, how is your relationship with the idea of death now? Like what do you think about it? I feel more alive now and I don't definitely don't want to die, but I'm also, again, like kind of come to that place of acceptance that it is you know, it's going to happen. It might happen sooner rather than later. And I'm more 
you know, I think accepting of the that's life, life isn't fair and that's okay. And all I really want is when it does happen, I want it to happen beautifully, you know, like how things end do a lot for your story about how things work. You know what I mean? Mm. There's this phrase called tertiary appraisal that I learned when I was doing research in my doctoral program. Wait, what is it? Tertiary appraisal. Tertiary and it was appraisal. This, it was a study with Vietnam War veterans and um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And mm-hmm. it was essentially this question that asked them, it asked them to kind of reflect back on what their experience during the war means for their life. You know, and it has that same kind of feeling for me, like the way you end something kind of helps you craft the story of what just happened. And it's a positive thing if you end it well, even if the stuff leading up to it was difficult. Mm. You know, so it's like, what would be worse is to have to go through all that cancer and then die and then have a stab funeral where it's just like, you know, at the end, you can sort of tie it up in a bow. And again, I think this comes back to it being hard for all the people around you. Um, you know, that's why you want a nice end, because it's really not for you. You're not going to be there. It's for all the people around you. And if you like, you know, at the very end, you took care of them. Yeah. You know, so they're going to feel like they had, and I'm sure like there are lots of ways to do that or whatever. I don't know if that's making much sense. No, I think it makes perfect sense. And I think everyone I talk to feels the same way about wanting to make sure that even if they haven't thought about what they want or they haven't made a plan or they haven't you know, written it down or shared it with anybody, I do think that the universal truth is that people don't want to cause extra grief or sadness or even honestly, the idea of just creating chaos you know, for the people. Right, uh, yeah, that, I mean, frankly, what, it's not even about what I want. The only thing I want, I should crowdsource it because it's really what do my <laughs> friends and family want? Like the people who I care about. I'm like, what would make you feel better about all of what just happened? That's what I would want to happen. You know, is it, I don't know. I'm not that attached to what happens me personally. And I don't, you know, I'm like, give it to science. I don't really care about my body. None of that feels important to me, but I imagine it being like you see it in movies sometimes where everyone like, I don't know, goes to our favorite old bar and puts on the playlist you all used to listen to together and tell stories about the fun times you all had together. Like that to me seems like the vibe that would be good. But again, I want whatever feels like that bow that wraps up the package, Yeah, you know, for my family and my kids and my friends. You have a, a really you know, close, great group of friends too. So before all this went down, did you and Samir have a plan? Like your husband, did you guys have like a, I don't know, like if something should happen to either one of us, like just- Not really. I mean, we have a, we have a very generic standard will, but no, no specifics at all. No. 
Not and really. is that still true or did you decide, did anything change like after? It's still true. Yeah. It's something that so many people, I mean, I, you know, I, I sat down and made something up with my lawyer, but I feel like it doesn't mm-hmm. even really make sense Honestly, anymore. Like I, I, we made our will before Millen was born and I don't even think he's in there yet. And the kid's eight. So <laughs> almost no, I'm as guilty as anyone of procrastinating. It's not for lack of wanting to, it's just, you know, it's like it gets list. in the way. Yeah. Put it in the list on the list when you have two kids in school, a, a big job, a husband and all the things that go with a busy, beautiful life. Yeah. Um, but if I did get married, it would be in a hotel bar or a Lincoln center or, or Lincoln center. Where was that come from? Because every time I go to the ballet, I oh. just love that theater so much. Oh, it's so like uh, sparkly and Mad Men or a hotel bar would be completely fitting. And yes. then you know, it'd be and great. Could I could come and visit you all the time. <laughs> you would just uh, like cremate whatever's left of my body, put it in an urn in a hotel bar, and then yeah, and then you could have the party there too. I mean, that's. And then I'll I'll do the same thing, and then we can just sit on the shelf next to each other in our urns, our our fabulous Perfect. decorative urns. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> or maybe they can make a signature cocktail out of us and sell it for like a lot <laughs> of money or something. <laughs> it's hard because while I think back to when I was younger and how awkward I felt about having these conversations, and you know, I had a friend who died of breast cancer in like I don't even know if she was thirty and. You know, I remember my conversations with her about it and in hindsight feel badly that I, I don't know, wasn't more like, I don't know what the right word is, insightful, sophisticated, sensitive. You know, it's hard when you haven't really had to look at it. And, and I wonder, I don't know, is it, it's an interesting, like, kind of cross-cultural question, you know, is yeah. it? Because is, is it just because we're American and it's such an American thing to avoid it at all costs? Or is it just youth? You know, is that the nature of youth? And and we're made like that to not think about it and not talk about it until we have to. I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably a little bit of both. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's that that aspect of denial, the denial of youth. It's like you, you know you're, you're never going to die. You're I mean, I still to think you'll live forever. You know, that's part it, of the fun. Exactly. And it, it lets us make plans, you know, and yeah. reach for the things that we want and who we want to become and all of that. But I also think that we have to be careful to not be unkind to ourselves in these type of situations, because they really are very difficult. And yeah, no, totally. It, it is a part of our human experience that we all do or will share. We will all, without a doubt, get there. But at the same time, it's like being in that position, especially if you're the one who is, for the moment, going to continue living and the other mm-hmm. person isn't. You know, I just think you have to be kind to yourself and just the point is to be open and just to be present and be there and let the conversation happen as much as you can, but yeah. don't don't judge yourself for feeling that you haven't done enough or because I think most of the time, I mean, of course, I'm not speaking from experience, but that the person on the other end is just wanting that connection as well. I mean, you just said that, you know, you don't want to be objectified in the sick person way. True. And it doesn't have to be forever. You know, what I enjoy most now is the fact that I can 
tell people say stuff to me. And because of what they say, I realize that they've totally forgotten everything that happened, you know, and I mm. love that. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, it's just, we're just gone and they don't think about it anymore. And frankly, a lot of times I don't either. And that's the way it should be. You know, yeah. you're going to live, you might as well enjoy it. Exactly. You know? It's true. You just, uh, you jumped right back into life with, I think even more sort of verve and excitement and all of that since that experience, which I wish had never happened to you. No, um, I know it sounds cheesy, but it's totally true. It's like, you know, everything, even really, really, really bad stuff can have a pretty significant silver lining. Yeah. Wow. That was tough. Thanks so much to Sarah, my little sister, for talking to me and for opening up in such a public way. I really hope it inspires you to talk to your own family and think about your future. If you want to spend some time working through what you might like for your farewelling, we have a handy farewelling checklist at myfarewelling.com. If you like the podcast, please do rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks. <laughs>